following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Hi, everybody. This is former WWE superstar Al Snow. And- CWN is Sean Oliver. My name is Eugene. And you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. Now get on the train. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast here in conjunction with the WZWA Network. I am your host here tonight, California in Fury. Very excited to have this guest on here tonight. Uh, former WWE Tag Team Champion, Hardcore Champion, and in my heart, in many fans' hearts, certainly a Hall of Famer, even in the heart of Daniel Pewter, who felt a knife edge chop likes that I've never seen or heard before from this man in the Royal Rumble. I'm talking about the one and only Hardcore Bob Holly. How you going, Bob? Hey, guys. Thank you for having me on your show. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure to have you, man. What, what was wrestling uh, to your childhood? Oh, wrestling was everything. It was everything. That's, I actually, I was actually, in, when I was in, born in, I was born in California. And so came up with this, uh, I saw this thing on TV on Saturday morning. It was roller derby. And that's actually how I fell in love with professional wrestling. Because roller derby came on every Saturday morning in L.A., and uh, so I would, I would watch it religiously because I liked the action. I liked the physicality of it. And then when my parents decided to move to Oregon, when we went north, then all of a sudden there was this thing called professional wrestling on TV. And I fell in love with professional wrestling. That was, I think, when I was eight, nine, ten, nine years old, something like that. And so... Uh, from that point on, that's all I wanted to do. That's all I dreamed of is being a professional wrestler. Now, before being a wrestler, um, you were a mechanic and also boxing in bars, I believe. Uh, what was the experience doing that for you uh, sort of in your early years uh, growing up into being a young adult? Well, obviously, trying to make ends meet at a young age was pretty difficult. So this buddy of mine that I worked with said, hey, there's these tough man contests they have at the bar every, every week. And I was like, well, I'll give it a shot. So that's what I did. I made extra money, made 50 to hundred dollars here and there. I mean, it wasn't much, but it helped pay the bills. And so I always had this infinite love for just physicality, anything physical. I just, I just endured. I just loved doing that. And so, and that helped me progress along the way to professional wrestling. And whenever I found out, I found out there was a professional wrestling school in Pensacola, Florida. Then the rest was history. Talk to me about training. Border Street Arena. It was Border Street Arena in Pensacola, Florida. I'll never forget that place. You talk about hot during the summer. No air conditioning. Humid. Of course, the South is very humid as it is. And during the summer, it's 92, 93 degrees with 88% humidity. So it makes for a fun time in that little building. <laughs> I love that uh, sort of everyone we've spoken to so far has always had a special building uh, that they've mentioned. And I'm uh, glad three minutes and we've managed to get yours out the way so far. Yeah. <laughs> Border Street <laughs> Arena. Awesome. Um, how was training for you? Uh, who trained you? Uh, Bob Sweetan and Rip Tyler. A couple of old school guys that were very, very rough. They scared the ever living piss out of me on a daily basis every time. Cause I would work a full time job. I'd work eight, 10 hours a day. And then I would go 
after that, after work, I would drive to Pensacola, which is to get to the arena, Border Street Arena was probably 45 minutes maybe. Yep. So, um, and then I would train for two, three and a half hours, something like that, and then drive back home, get up early the next morning, do it all over again, go to work for eight hours and then head across to Pensacola. Awesome. That, would, that sounds like a lot of rough times, especially back in those days. Oh, it was. Of oh, because they, the thing is with like guys like Bob Sweetan and Rip Tyler, they, uh, they protected the business. And so they would, the first, probably the first week, they just really tore your ass up. They would stretch you on a daily basis and they wanted to see if you came back. And obviously I came back every week. I mean, I had my ass handed to me several, several times. <laughs> it was a good time, though. I survived, obviously. Do you have any sort of uh, notable trainees that you trained with at the school or under the wing? Uh, Pat Rose. He was one of the main trainers there. And uh, Pat was always really good. And uh, him and I developed a good relationship. Him and I also went to Memphis together as a tag team. And so, but Pat was, uh, I thought Pat was a very excellent trainer. That's awesome, man. When you yeah. moved into your early career, you are sort of teaming with Robert Gibson at one point. How was that experience for you? Because obviously he was huge back in the day. Um, yeah. How was uh, that experience for you sort of having him uh, sort of take you under his wing at such an early point in your career? It, it was surreal because I used to watch him on TV as a wrestling fan. And it was just one of those pinch me moments where I couldn't <laughs> believe I was with this guy, you know, side by side with him. And, and it was very beneficial to me because it taught me wrestling psychology, which I, I lacked. And so being with him was, I think, very beneficial to my career, simply because I learned so much from him and the ins and outs, the locker room etiquette, everything from him, a lot of stuff from him. And so I felt like that. I was very fortunate to have him show me because back in that, those days back there, it was very hard to get anybody to take you in. Yeah. And I was very lucky in that aspect for him to take me in. I want to go uh, take a bit of a sidebar here. Um, you've got a bit of a passion for NASCAR or a huge passion. Oh, yeah. Some may say, some may say, and there was a, um, it's also ties into your first WWF gimmick, which is uh, the spark plug. Uh, gimmick sort of talk to me about your passion for, uh, passion for NASCAR has this always been a uh, thing that's been a part of your life as well as wrestling yeah I've always loved racing as a kid also <clears throat> and racing is very expensive and I just thought that that's something I would never have the opportunity to do and so I had pretty much it was after my Smoky Mountain days I just completely gave up on wrestling and a buddy of mine he raced and he said, hey, I know where we can get a car and we can start building. And I'm like, cool. And he was a plumber. So I, and, you know, I was working, I was working paycheck to paycheck back then. And he said, you could work for me on weekends to help pay the bills on the race car. I'll buy the equipment. You just pay me back by working it off. I was like, cool, sure. And so I did that. And once I got, we built the first, my first race car. Uh, like I said, I've never, you know, that was my first opportunity to be, be in a race car. And so we got the thing built 
And on Thursdays, they have open practice at the tracks. So I took my car down there. We all loaded it up, took it down there. And I was shaking it down, warming it up. And got going on the very first lap, the transmission seized up. Well, it just shows you how smart I was. I forgot to put gear oil in the transmission. <laughs> so, so basically, that ended my practice session, getting used to the car and getting ready to race on Saturday night because this is Thursday. The race is in, in two days. <clears throat> and so we took the car back to the shop, got a transmission. A guy actually donated a transmission, which was nice. Laverne Fairlett uh, donated the transmission for me. And so we got it back in. And mind you, I have no laps, no seat time in that race car. And so I went out, I went out to practice and we get like 10 minutes of practice. So I go out there, I'm a nervous wreck. Anyway, fast forward to the heat race. The heat race basically essentially is you have your fastest qualifiers and then you have the rest of the, there was like 28 cars that night. And so they split the field into heat races to, to determine your starting position in the feature. And so I got going in the heat race and I made my way up to second place. And I thought, oh, this is so great. As I was coming off of turn two, we had like two laps left and I, I caught the leader of the heat race. I caught him. Well, at Mobile International Speedway on the back straightaway, there is no wall back there. It's asphalt. And then, and it's the back straightaway has a slight banking to it. And then it just planes off with where the dirt and grass is. And I got my left side, my right side rear tire coming off of two into that dirt. And buddy, that thing went sideways on me, came shot straight across the track, basically went for a ride in that thing and just about destroyed that thing. There was a telephone pole. They have a big mound of dirt to protect that pole. So if a car hits it, all you're going to do is hit that mound of dirt. If I'd have hit that mound of dirt, it would have wadded that car up and my racing days would have been completely over because there was no way I could afford to build another car. So anyway, the car was fine. And so I ended up finishing last in the heat race. And then the feature, I can't remember where I started, but I ended up fourth in my very first feature race out of 28 cars. And I didn't think that was too bad. And the funny part about this is one of the guys that was helping us when we were building the car, he told me, he said, Bob, he said, don't even go out. Don't even think about winning a race for the next two years. Just go out there, learn how to drive. And that's it. Just to have fun. And I thought, okay, cool. Well, the following weekend, I went out and I won my first race. I won the, the heat race and the feature. And so I went back into pits and told him, I said, I thought you said I wouldn't win my first race for at least two years. And that didn't sit too well with him. And needless to say, he went on to build a race car. He didn't have anything to do with me after that because I guess jealousy set in. So then he went and built a race car. His name was David Jones. And he could never beat me. And so after, <laughs> after I had won my first race, I, if I didn't win, I finished second. Following weekend, I would win. I won seven races that year, and I only started half the season. And then the following year, I ended up being track champion. It's not so, a bad effort. Not a bad effort. No. Yeah, that's the way. Did pretty well. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. And then, uh, so, WWE, I got a phone call from WWE. And with that whole deal there, because of my racing background, 
J.J. Dillon thought it would be a good idea to give me that name. And so, uh, of course, I'm not going to say no. Any, nobody's going to say no to WWE, WWF awesome. back then. And so once I started making a little bit more money, I built another race car, and I just raced that on my days off, which were few and far between. I actually had the car built up in uh, Virginia, South Boston, Virginia, A&E race cars, and Hermie Sadler and I became good friends. His brother, Elliot, ran in NASCAR and Cup Series for years. And so on off weekends, every once in a while, I'd get off. I'd go up north and race up there in the Carolinas and stuff in Virginia. So I, I just I just absolutely love racing. If I could do it right now, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But it's just so expensive, so expensive. you got to have sponsors and everything else. And it, it takes a lot to operate a team. And you have to have good people around you. And that's the thing. Like when I first started racing, I had really good people around me that knew everything about race cars and knew how to set them up. I didn't know anything. All I knew was just get in there and drive. Yep. I didn't know what loose was. I didn't know what pushing was. I didn't know what cross weight was. I didn't know what right and left side percentage was. I just went out there and drove. And, they'd, and I'd come in, they'd ask me, how's the car? I'd be like, seems fine to me when it was loose as hell or if it was pushing like a dump truck. <laughs> but I still won. Yeah. So, and then it just, it, it, to be good, in a race car, you could be the best driver in the world, but if you don't have a good team, good support system around you, you're, you're not going to do worth a damn. Of course. It's, yeah. just, it's sort of like speaking an entirely different language. You're saying you don't know anything about, you know, all those things you just listed there. When you're selling that back to me, if I tried to sit in a race car, all I can think of is get in and drive. That's crazy right. how much is actually involved in racing. Oh, it is. Like, that's and see, nuts. And I've learned so much over the years about racing. I understand the every aspect about a race car now and it's like if i if i could just get back in a race car understanding every aspect of it i mean i did well but i would i think i would do just that much better under now that i do understand every aspect tire pressures everything i mean everything affects that race car every even a small adjustment to the front sway bar determines whether you're going to be tight or pushing or loose or whatever so, and just every, even half a pound of tire pressure affects that race car like you would not believe. It's just crazy. Plus, the elements, the temperature, whether it's hot or cold, if the, if the asphalt's hot, then it's going to be slick. If, it, if it's a cool night, you're going to have tons of grip. So, there's just so much to it. But being inside that race car inches away from other cars, there's nothing like it in the world. Nothing nothing <laughs> you um had a you did a brief us uh, in the all, all pro series did you still have the car that uh vince gifted you the uh, wf sponsored car do you still own oh that? no that thing's so out that would have been so outdated i after uh i ran it for a couple of years i sold everything because it just cars like that they get outdated everything changes right. it's like computers all that computer stuff changes every yeah. day yeah race yep. car race cars technology changes every single day and so the i mean you could strip it down and start with the bare bones chassis and do a lot of upgrades to the the front end and the crossway everything to it and 
the way they make everything now, it just those race cars handle like go-karts. It's crazy. Cool. All right. Um, so uh, I guess um, you, you've been driving in the WWF sponsored car. Are you wrestling at the same time as doing the racing or um, does that come later on? Do you end up stop doing no. racing and wrestling? No, I was doing, actually I was doing both and it right. was very exhausting. That would be insane. Oh, <laughs> it was crazy because we'd be on the road three, four weeks at a time. And then I would have to plan these race weekends ahead of time with Vince to get off to go race. And so what was happening was I'd fly home, we'd load up the race car and mind you, I had a guy working on it for me in my shop. That was his main job is to keep the car up. And it got to the point where every time we would load up and go to the track, we were actually working on the car at the track because with me being gone, I didn't have enough time to work on the race car. Yeah. and get the things that I needed to perform at a high level. And so it just got to be very difficult. And I had to make a decision whether I wanted to keep racing or wrestling. And also that was at a time when, when Vince was sponsoring me and he was going through that steroid trial too. Yeah. So the funding there kind of fell off also. And that's when he had called me and he gifted me the race car and all the equipment and everything. And so, so he would have uh, brought you to TV. Uh, well, were you on TV at that time, but now you're going to be full-time wrestling the cars now in the background. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I was still wrestling full-time, but just re and racing maybe once a month. Right. Or it started out every weekend that they were sending me home. And it was, it was exhausting because I'd fly home and then load up the car, everything, the trailer, everything, and drive seven, eight hours to the next race. And then turn around, drive back home after the race, hop on a plane and fly out to whatever city we were doing our shows at. And wow, so it just, nice. it just got to, it just, it was too much. It was just too much. I can and imagine. Then, uh, yeah, um, it, it was so rough. You go through the uh, the new generation era of the WWF, uh, Sparky Plug. Uh, there's also a time when you're in the new Midnight Express. That doesn't end up going too long. But soon after that's all over, you end up being in this group known as the Job Squad, which is the shirt that I'm wearing right now. Yeah, nice shirt, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, we, we spoke to Al Snow last week, and we talked to him about the Job Squad and the run that that group had. Um, when you found out you were going to be in a group called the Job Squad, what was your initial reaction? Oh, I was glad. I was happy because it was like, finally, they're going to put me in something and do something with me. Yeah. That's what you I just, was thinking. The thing is, yeah. And it's like, the thing is, it's like, you just want to be involved in something because if you're not involved in anything, it's, it's actually boring. Yeah. yeah. Because it's not any fun just going out there and just being a, a utility guy and going out there and putting guys constantly putting guys over and cause you don't make any money doing that because you're not in any pay-per-views, you're not in any angles or anything like that or any storylines. And so it just had made it tough. And when, and uh, 
Russo, I think it was Russo and Al came up with the, Al actually came up with the job squad and went to Russo with it. I think if I'm not mistaken, that's how it went down. And, um, Al can correct me on that, but I know Al came up with the idea. Yeah. And so they came to me and said, Hey, we want you part of the job squad. And I was like, hell yeah. You know, why yeah. not? So, and that's, and I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It, it was really fun getting to do, you know, silly things and stuff. Did you um, see it as an opportunity? You're, you're going to be put in this group with these guys where they weren't doing much like Scorpio, etc. You see, this is an opportunity. Okay. Now I'm on TV. Now I'm doing something. I could possibly be the breakout star from this group by showing what I've got. And this is how I'm going to be able to come out of this group uh, when it eventually ends. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because I never thought of it like that because I was just basically, as they say, you get lost in the shuffle. So I was lost in the shuffle. I actually still didn't know who I really was as far as character wise, because the race car gimmick, yes, I was a legit race car driver, but I was not happy being that character because Vince wanted me this, this race car character, just this happy go lucky guy. And in racing, it's not like that. Your mood is a roller coaster in, in racing because one week you could win one week, the next week you destroy your race car. You're on top of the world one week, at the, the next week you're at the bottom. Yeah. And so it's an emotional roller coaster. And also you may win and if you don't win the next week and you finish 10th or whatever, your car is not performing as you would want it to because you made the, went the wrong direction with adjustments and stuff like that. That race car dictates your mood. If the race car is running good, then you're you're looking forward to the race and if yeah. it's not running good and not handling properly you just basically just try to get through the race so you can move on to the next week and fix whatever was wrong with it so i was lost in the shuffle essentially and with that character i just with the vince wanting this character to be a happy-go-lucky guy race car driver and it's like uh, that's just not the way it is in racing and so when we decided to go the different direction with the character and when I asked Vince if we could just drop the name and I could just be Bob Holly, he, that's when I just kind of got lost in the shuffle and I was trying to find myself in wrestling. Where do I belong in this massive company as a wrestler? I have to try to find my fit somewhere. And that takes time. And actually, I credit Vince because he's the one that came up with the name because of how rough I was. And then when they came up with the hardcore gimmick, it was a perfect fit for me because I just like physical things. And with the job squad, getting back to your question, with the job squad, I never thought of it as an opportunity to be a breakout star to use this opportunity to get myself over. Yes, it's every man for himself in the wrestling business. But also, I wanted to be loyal to Al because he put this thing together and I wanted it, I wanted it to work for all of us because Scorpio, Blue Meanie, myself, Al, I liked everybody that was involved in it. And we all got along fantastic. And that was the beauty of that, that gimmick. And 
we always bounced ideas off of each other. Al was the, the, the brain trust of the whole thing anyways. And Al, Al always has such great ideas. I've learned a lot from Al. I mean, a ton from Al. And I just never thought of the job squad as a platform to break out, break away from these guys. Right, I was okay. living in the moment with them and whatever happens, happens. And right so, on. Yeah. And so whenever, you know, it's like, cause I, I mean, the wrestling business, you're supposed to be selfish and I didn't feel like I was selfish. And the reason being is because I didn't, I thought of us, all four of us as a group, a team that I wanted to stay loyal to. And I didn't want to be like, Hey, this is going to be about me before it's over with. I didn't yeah. think like that at all. You know, I just wanted to ride the wave and then wherever it goes from there, that's where it goes. Yeah. Um, by the way, we spoke to Al last week and he did say to say, said to say that um, he misses you and he loves you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I miss Al and I love him. I, I don't get to see him that much, but, but uh, Al's been a huge, huge um, contributor to me learning a lot of things and learning what to do and what not to do and stuff like that. He's and where to put things and, and I'm forever grateful to him. Oh, he Absolutely. is. He um, is. He's, a, he's a mastermind at the, in the exactly, wrestling business. Exactly uh, what I was about to say, man. He, was, he blew my it's mind like he, last week, man. If you, yeah. If you, if you look, he's an encyclopedia of wrestling is basically is what he is. But you want to learn anything, you just ask him. Seriously, I, I kid you not. Oh, um, him. Once the um, the job squad was over and done with, uh, you ended up feuding with Al um, over the Huckle Championship, which uh, ended up some of the the most entertaining matches in the the history of that championship. Um, you know, what was it like feuding with Al? And uh, you know, you was telling us last week about how um, you almost legitimately drowned him in the mississippi river oh i was trying to drown him <laughs> that's because it was al i mean i have to do that to him yeah. <laughs> we it's funny because we always abused each other and uh i think i abused him more than he abused me and i always got a kick <laughs> because of al's reactions are always priceless i was always trying to get a reaction out of him and that's why i always did the things i did to him <laughs> Because I knew I can get a, a, like a priceless reaction out of him. People always say that I was rough on other people and stuff. But Al took the brunt of a lot of things that I did on purpose to him. <laughs> and it was, it, it's just his reactions in the, in the back were priceless. Uh, and me thinking about drowning, and that makes me want to laugh because that is true. I was like, I'm just going to try to drown this bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not literally, but, you know, I just wanted to make him drink the river a little bit. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I wanted to move on a little bit forward uh, with uh, the run that I believe, in my opinion, is the best run that I saw you have as the big shot. I um I thought this gimmick was, this is you. You were oh, getting 100%. over so well with the audience you were connecting with the audience so yep. well and this bob holly character 
really actually believed he was as big as Viscera and the Big Show and Kane and the Undertaker. And it was getting such great reactions that you seem to be in the main event storyline for at least a month, maybe a month and a half. Yeah. Getting chokeslammed by Kane over and over again. I mean, Ed Ferrara and Vince Russo, and I know Ed Ferrara said something really nice about you and how he loved working with you and he loved the Big Shot storyline. Tell me about how... Did you feel like you really found yourself with that gimmick and that story? Oh, 100%. I had so much fun doing that. And see, that's the key. If you have a blast doing what you're doing, it's going to come off so effortless and so believable. And the audience, those people hated me so bad. (laughs) I made them hate me so bad. (laughs) <laughs> that every time Kane would choke slam me, that place would erupt. Like he choke slammed me like I think four or five times in one night. Like in that match we had, yeah, where I put my foot. I think it was I put my foot over his chest to pin him, and then he grabbed. I got I, I straddled him and I was, like sticking my finger in his face and he reached up and grabbed me. I think he choke slammed me like five or six times that night, right oh. in a row, and. <laughs> Every single time he grabbed me and threw me down, those people would erupt. And yeah, it hurt. Like after the third one, I was like, oh my God, I can't take this anymore. I was like, I can't take it anymore. And he's snickering under his mask. It's hilarious because he's, he's laughing under his mask. You can't see him snickering. And he choke slams me, grabs me again, and he's even chuckling under his mask. And I was like, oh, no, not again. Please don't. And he did it like six times. And I was just – I was, he ragdolled me basically on that last oh, one. Oh, no. And, uh, yeah, so I – it was fun because I would go in the back like looking for Big Show. And it was just a blast to do getting my ass handed to me. It, I know it sounds morbid, but I freaking enjoyed that more than anything I think I did there. And like you said, it was getting, it got over and why they pulled the plug on it. I have no idea. That's one of those things. You'll never know why you'll never know why. And it was getting over. People loved it. Yeah. It was great. Ask here. Uh, I remember, I remember the day, (laughs) the actual moment seeing Kane choke slamming me those five times as a kid. And I was (laughs) Oh my God, he's never coming back from this. No one's ever been choke slammed repeatedly like this. No. <laughs> and then you no. came back the next week and you went after him again. <laughs> never well, learned your lesson. Of punishment there. <laughs> but yeah, that the big shot gimmick. I just that was just the best. I thought I I really enjoyed that, and it just was very too short lived. Absolutely. I think they could have got a lot of mileage out of it, but for whatever reason, which we'll never know why. They they shut it down. I don't know. Do you think maybe the reason might have been um, they saw Mike Lockwood and thought, oh, let's move them into let's move Bob into the tag division. We've got this guy we can put with him. I wanted to kind of bring up you teaming with Crash Holly and um, you know how that came about and what you thought of it and uh, yeah. Um, Also, and I enjoyed working with Ed Ferrara too. I I loved him. He was awesome to work with. He he, yep. he was. And anyways, getting back to getting to crash. Um, yeah, I think we were in Milwaukee. And Bruce Pritchard 
had walked up to me and said, Hey, by the way, you have a new cousin, Crash Holly. Like, oh, <laughs> okay. thanks for calling me and letting me know. I appreciate it. But anyway, um, I thought it worked well. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with Mike. He was a funny little bastard. He, um, he was tough too. He never complained. I'd hit him. I'd hit him pretty damn hard just because it's TV and it has to look believable. If we're supposed to really be this family that fights, it has to look believable. So I would literally just, you know, I, I would punch him pretty hard, but in safe places, obviously. And, and I would ask him to do the same. And I felt like that was getting over too. We were supposed yeah. to do, we were supposed to do a, um, either it was a Thanksgiving or a Christmas at the Holly house. And it was going to be the, <laughs> supposed to be this trailer park. They were looking for this trailer that had grass growing up and it, and it just looked like an abandoned trailer with lawnmowers sitting in the yard, cars up on bricks, blocks, cinder blocks, stuff like that. And that was going to be where we had this vignette. And it was a great idea. I think Ed was the one that came up with the idea. And we were gonna have probably at least 15 people involved in this vignette. And it was gonna be Christmas at the Hollies. <laughs> and uh, the whole concept of the idea was, it was supposed to be where I get pissed off because somebody gives me a sweater again for Christmas and I'm tired of getting <laughs> sweaters for Christmas. And we basically all break out into this big fight <laughs> and just tear the place up even worse than it's already torn up. But for whatever reason, it never happened, but I oh. thought that would have been fun to do too. So, but it was fun working with crash. It was, it was, it was fun. He was kind of a wild card anyway, because like, he'd go out at night and things like that and cause a lot of problems. He got, had a lot of heat with the boys right. and it was just a shame. He was, a, he was a good hand too. He was good. He was good at his character. His deliveries were, were on point. Everything was on point with him. He was, he was good. And I just, it was just a shame what happened to him, you know? Yeah, I agree. And, and I'll say this, I, I, um, well, number one, I always laughed my ass off when you two, oh, here we go. The Collie cousins are fighting again. <laughs> yep. Um, but I, I, I'd never really seen him because you guys are always in tag matches and he was the smaller guy and you guys are always against bigger guys. So you never get to see him do his thing. But then I saw a match with him on Sunday Night Heat against Takamich Noku. And I was like, holy shit. Crash yeah. Holly's fucking amazing. He's a oh, he fantastic wrestler. Yeah. Really was uh, astounded yeah. um, finally seeing him get to be in his element. Um, yeah. he, he could go. That's for damn sure. Um, Jack, I'll throw it back to you, bro. What, uh, what did Molly Holly add to the group uh, in terms uh, for you and Crash? Uh, did she give you guys a lot more of a dynamic to work with in terms of the it Holly did. Cousins? It did. It, it just kind of opened up other possibilities of storylines and so forth. Um, I, I loved working with Nora. She's, uh, she is one of the probably the best workers out there far as female workers you don't find a better worker than her and uh i i just i felt like they could have done a lot more with us definitely but they just for whatever reason every time we would get something started they would shut it down 
Um, Bob, I wanted to fast forward a little bit to 2003 um, when you make your return to, to go after Brock Lesnar and you're, now you, you, you're going for the WWE Championship at the Rumble. Um, one thing I wanted to say was I, I listened to um, Bruce Pritchard's podcast and he did an episode about you, I believe. And uh, yep, I love Bruce. Bruce said, is awesome. He had said in it... Um, Oh, yeah, no, this thing with Bob and Brock was kind of like it was just going to be this one and done thing and, and that was it. So I kind of felt like to me as a fan, it, it felt a little bit unfair. Like, oh, why is, why is Bob Holly's uh, ultimate destination already predetermined? Maybe through this feud with Brock, you've got another main event guy in your hands. Because I remember seeing your return on SmackDown and yep. I think you had jeans on and you had you know, you were topless and you looked like a million bucks and you look like a oh, real yeah. badass baby face. And I'm like, man, like yeah. this, this really, I don't know, just, just for me personally, I really felt like you could have been up in, in the upper echelon for a bit longer than just, you know. Um, yeah. And that's another one of those questions. You'll never know why, you know, you know, you just don't know why. And I liked working with Brock. I enjoyed it. And we got along great. But for whatever reason, it was just a one and done deal. And right after that, I sat on the sidelines. They didn't do anything with me. You know, I was off for 13 months and I come back. And then they start doing something with me. And we run this angle with Brock. And then as soon as we get to Philadelphia at Royal Rumble, it's over. And actually, yeah. to see the match was supposed to be at least 20 minutes. And by the time we got to Gorilla, it was cut down to eight minutes. That's bullshit. Getting ready to go out. Yeah, exactly. So it was just, you know, it's demoralizing. It's it's like, how are you supposed to feel? They want you, they 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 don't want you, they want you to always have this positive outlook. And but once you start getting like discouraged, they think you have an attitude problem. And it's like, and then they wonder why. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, they start something and then they take it away and they start something, take it away, start something, take it away. It starts to uh, really resonate with you and it just starts to really piss you off and you can't get any answers. Everybody tap dances around the issue and it's like, uh, well, you know, we're, we're just trying to figure out a different direction to go and you can never get a straight answer. And they basically tell you what you want to hear and then you walk out of a meeting with them and it's like, wait a second, I just accomplished nothing. And so it just kind of really demoralizes you. And it's yeah. like, you know, fast forward to <clears throat> WrestleMania in Ford Field when I was supposed to work with Bobby Lashley. Mind you, I'd been working with him for several months on a nightly basis on house shows, everything. And even over in Afghanistan and Iraq, I was working with him. And we were supposed to go to Mania, the hair versus hair match, Vince versus oh, Donald Trump. God. And that was supposed to be me. And it wound up being Umaga. And so wow. I almost walked out TV the next day. I almost walked out, but uh, Dusty Rhodes talked me out of leaving. And uh, oh. I was just, I just, was that had enough, just had enough of this starting and stopping, starting and stopping and not getting any answers. It's you know, just not I fair. Think, no, it's, and I just, I mean, life isn't fair. 
in the wrestling business, there's nothing fair in the wrestling business. No. You know, mind you, it doesn't matter how talented you are. Good, because they always talk about grab that brass ring. Well, there is no brass ring. It's an no. imaginary brass ring. There is no brass ring. It's what they want to do with who they want to do stuff with. I don't care how talented you are. You could be one of the worst wrestlers. And if they want to take and make you a world champion, that's exactly what they're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And the general consensus that I've, I've seen over the years. And yeah. it seemed like as your years went by, more red tape appeared. And, uh, you know, even if someone did get themselves over, like I believe you got yourself over again when you yeah. returned from your injury. Um, you, I think you were grabbing that brass ring, but they were just pulling it away. I was trying to, they, you know, they, and see, you know, take, for example, they always say, get yourself over and we'll do something with you. Mm -hmm. It's not up to us. It's up to you. It's not up to creative. It's up to you, the talent to get yourself over. Okay. Case in point, Zach Ryder. Yeah. He went out Here's and got example. over a million followers on social media, a million and got himself over and what look what happened to him exactly he did wow. exactly what they asked him to do okay take uh Dolph Ziggler for example uh, I think he is probably one of the most talented people on this planet that went out got himself over and what's he doing he does mostly jobs yeah he should have been world champion several times already so that whole thing, go out there and get yourself over is a bunch of bullshit. Oh, you know, no doubt. No doubt. It is. It's BS. It's, 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 it's a, look, you're, you're in a wrestling business that is not real. Like the outcomes are not real. It's not when, and when I say not real, the, the bumps, the hits, the abuse our body takes is real, but there is no real stats. So, because your future is based on somebody else saying, telling you what you're going to do, what you are going to do, and what you aren't going to do. So, and that's why it's not recognized as a legit sport, wins and losses and all that stuff. But they tell you go out and get, cause, because if it was based on that, nobody would be doing it. Yeah, of course. Exactly. You know, and, uh, and the thing is, it's like Dolph Ziggler, he went out several, several people, Ted DiBiase Jr. He, he oh, went out, got himself over. And where's he at? He's sitting yeah. at home. I haven't seen him in years. Sucks. Yeah. It's a shame. So it's just, it's like, it's, it's all what they want to do with you basically. And all, all who you're, who you're uh, best friends with and so forth. And I don't have a problem with that. Just, just, recognize that people go out there and do get themselves over and and do what you say you're going to do if they get themselves over do something with them yeah yeah so there's a long long list of you know people out there that have spent so many years you know 10 20 30 years you know and being one of the best some of the best wrestlers in the world who were just never given a chance and i just think that's oh, so yeah so unfair man you know yeah i feel I like mean, life's not fair and that's just the wrestling business like and that's the thing. It's like, if I didn't like it, I could have quit. Yeah. But I enjoyed the wrestling business. Yeah. I got frustrated a lot of times, 
but I still enjoyed what I did. And I always had this perception in my mind, just keep plugging away. My hard work's eventually going to pay off. And I've always had that mindset, even though I'd get discouraged. I always had that mindset of just, you know what, keep pushing forward. Keep, something's going to give, something's going to give. And unfortunately it never did, but you know, that's just the way it is. I'm not going to cry because I wasn't world champion or anything like that. It's well, you're, you're a world champion in my heart, Bob. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, back to you, Jack. Um, sort of speaking about that time, you were just uh, expressing to us then your frustration after having uh, that push taken away and the brass ring just being pulled and pulled and pulled away after being so close so many times. Um, in the summer of 2006, uh, the WWE... They uh, did a re uh, the second reunion show of ECW, sort of like a relaunch, and uh, you were put into WWE CW. What was your initial reaction uh, to being put in there? Was it sort of like a breath of fresh air for you after so much it was. frustration? Again, it was another opportunity to, to once again go out and get myself over. Of course. And because they had so many guys sitting in the back not doing anything. And so when they decided to move forward with the ECW, and make it part of the flag, one of their flagship programs under the umbrella of WWE. I thought, you know, that that's going to be an awesome opportunity for a bunch of people. Of course. And my thing is, is like, if we can all go out there and make it work and get over, then we all make a bunch of money together. So I just looked at it again is another opportunity and i enjoyed being part of ecw banner i really did and i think one of my favorite matches of all time is the one i had with rob van dam yeah yeah can i say something about that match i just want to say this yeah. i remember when it happened i remember people saying oh that's right bob holly's still fucking awesome <laughs> <laughs> You just weren't given the chance to show it for so long. And it's like, oh, shit, Bob, Bob Holly, yes. Hardcore fucking Holly, yes. <laughs> Thank you. I, we, you know, we told an awesome story, I thought, too. Oh, yeah, brilliant it, match, bro. Yeah, it was just, and it's just one of those deals where the table just didn't do what it was supposed to do. I mean, I, I, live I, TV, <laughs> shit goes wrong sometimes <laughs> that was one of the things i personally think it worked out so much better when you look back on it i mean god i can imagine it you know it's not so good on you but the visual oh, no i was fine i was fine i thought after it happened i was like what the hell is that what's going on it just like it felt like somebody slapped me on my back like i had a sunburn yeah when i was laying there and i remember the referee saying don't move just stay right here we're still in commercial break i'll tell you when to move and mind you that damn commercial break was four or five minutes long mm. i'm sitting there thinking i cannot lay here this long so i started to roll over i rolled over on all fours and i was thinking maybe just the table the way i landed on it just like slapped me on my back and so when i rolled over and i was on all fours and i looked down i saw all this blood on the side my side running down my side i was like what the hell happened and then i looked on the floor and there's a big puddle of blood on the floor because i was laying on my back I was like, holy shit, did I get shot? <laughs> and uh, anyways, so the whole time during the commercial break, the trainer came down, 
Dr. Rios came down and wanted Vince, wanted to look at it and see if they were going to stop the match. And uh, I remember the trainer coming down, looking at it and said, just Dr. Rios is going to come look at it. And I was like, get away from me. And I, that's when I rolled back in the ring and I wouldn't let him look at it. And then I just, the angle I was at, I looked at the Titan Tron and I saw this big gaping gash and I was like, Holy shit. I really did it good this time. <laughs> and I thought, well, just might as well just roll with it. And it actually, I thought it just added to the dramatics of the match. Yeah. So it just, it worked out like it should have, I guess it just, it just added to the match. I felt as far as the drama and everything. And, uh, I just, I, I feel like that was one of my best performances and with Rob, Rob, and cause I loved working with Rob. Yeah. I loved working with him. Avide is an incredible talent. And of course that match is a hidden gem. And for anyone that's watching this, that has not seen that match, go and look it up. It's, yeah. and it's you know, it's funny too, because I'm oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, go ahead. But it's, uh, you know, they popped when Rob beat me and then, once uh, Dr. Rios, because they want, they didn't want me to get up. The referee said, "Just stay right here." They didn't want me getting up because they wanted to add to the dramatics of the, of what happened. So they sent out Dr. Rios. They sent the trainer out, and when I stood up, I got a standing ovation. You know, I was like, yeah. "Wow, that is just so." I mean, it gave me goosebumps, and I thought that was just the coolest thing. And I and I appreciate those wrestling fans that did that. I mean, I appreciate all my wrestling fans. And uh, it's funny because I get fan mail all the time. And I try to do the best I can to answer them as quickly as I can. Sometimes I can't. But for the most part, I try to answer everybody. And so, and it's funny too, because you wouldn't believe the amount of things people send for me to sign. Like <laughs> I have time to sign every piece every item you times that by you know 50 or 60 pieces of mail times five trading cards 10 trading cards action <laughs> figures i'm gonna be there all day and so it's got to the point now where i just i only sign one piece and i because i can't sit there all day and sign everything of course you know <laughs> but i do appreciate my wrestling fans that's awesome that's really good, yeah. man. Uh, the standing ovation would have been the best feeling. And guess who got themselves over again? Bob Holly. Yep. <laughs> and where did that go? Nowhere. Well, went to the Extreme Elimination Chamber, which was probably, uh, you know, a very forgettable show overall. But how was that experience for you? I mean, it's kind of, uh, that adds a bit of another element to the Elimination Chamber. But I mean, I guess uh, being Sabu's replacement, being last minute, uh, was that sort of a quick to prepare um, moment for you or was that sort of uh, something that you already? I'm always ready to go. It doesn't matter. I'm always <laughs> ready to go. I was always ready. Um, and I was, I was kind of surprised that I felt like I should have been in it to begin with. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But it's just one of them deals where um, I always had this outlook of something's going to come along. So don't worry about it. And uh, just keep doing, just keep doing me, just keep going out there and, and do working the best I can and, and being the, the best Bob Holly, hardcore Holly that I can. And, uh, and they came to me and said, Sabu's not going to be in the show. We're going to put you in it. I was like, cool. Okay. No, it's not like I'm going to say no or anything. Again, it's another opportunity to try to get over. 
Yeah. So, and I, again, that thing, that was, I was sore after that one. Cause that, that elimination chamber, those, those grates that they put down, they didn't move. Mm. You land on those things and it's just, they don't move. And people wonder, I mean, people understand why our bodies break down. And like, like now, it's like last year I had a rotator cuff surgery and that I couldn't do anything for gosh, six, eight months for my shoulder to heal. And actually this is July. It'll be in a next week. It'll be a year out from my surgery. So all this stuff compounds your injuries. You, all the abuse we put our bodies through in that elimination chamber, that, that, that was a rough one. It's just rough, you know, cause landing on that, that grating outside the ring and stuff like that. And, uh, it doesn't look fun. It sounds, no, I mean, it's fun when you're out there cause your adrenaline's going, but then oh, after course. you cool down, you start rethinking everything. And it's like, I don't know if that was such a good idea. So, <laughs> Carl, back to you. All right, Bob, uh, only a few more questions remaining. Um, I wanted to ask you about your tag team with Cody Rhodes, because this is, this is just my guess, my estimation. Okay. Yes. We want, I like we want, the way you do. I like the way you said that. We, we <laughs> want <good. laughs> to get this kid Cody Rhodes over, but it's not working so far. What can we do? Okay. Bob knows how to get himself over. Maybe he can help get this kid over. Okay, cool. Let's do that. Okay, he's done it. Okay, Cody turns on Bob. Okay, cool. Bob's done his job. And Bob's gone. That's bullshit. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> That's not fair. You did your job correctly, and that's all right. Yeah. After all those years, <laughs> thanks for that. Thanks, you got Cody over. Yep. Yep. And see, that that's the thing. It's like, again, there is a storyline there. And yeah. to this day, it we haven't closed that chapter. Exactly. And Cody had reached out to me gosh, maybe a couple months ago, longer, my wife says longer, but I'm <laughs> terrible at time. Yeah, this was, this was, yeah, it was a few months ago. Had a few, four or five months ago. However, <laughs> I could look in my phone and see when he last texted me. I could, I've been, yeah, I've been hit over. But if I looked at my phone, I could tell you when the last time he texted me because it's, I still have the, the message but anyway and asked me if i was interested in doing something with him at aew and i told him yeah and uh he first reached out to me on twitter sent me a private message and then i then he uh sent me a text message and uh well at first when he sent me the message on twitter i dm'd him back and everything and we talked and because he wanted to that's when he was doing independence and wanted to work a program with me all around the country doing independence uh, wherever. Wow, that would have been awesome. And yeah. That would have been fantastic. We'd have made some money together. And so I, I didn't hear anything from him. And then fast forward to AEW. Um, they wanted, he wanted to see if I was interested in coming in and doing a little something with him. Oh, that'd be so, great. Yeah. And then I hadn't heard back from him again. It's like, Oh, damn it. You know. Never say never, man. Maybe it could be the 
the whole pandemic issue. Maybe when all the crowds come back, you know, maybe yeah. we'll still put you in front of a crowd. That's who, when who it's knows? Right. You just, you just, yeah. you don't, you just don't know. I'm still in great shape. We just saw yeah, then. I'm, still, just saw I'm still, still ready to go, but I'm just not as big as I used to be. <laughs> I'm still, you know, I'm right around 200 pounds and I'm ripped. But the thing is, you got to understand back then too, I was also all gassed to the gills because back then you know, that if, if hardcore Holly at 200 pounds wouldn't be hardcore Holly like he was um, back in the day at 230, 235. So, but now I just, I don't do any gas whatsoever. And I'm just, I just work out. I just eat my ass off, but I, it's like, it's a mystery. It's like, I, where'd Cody go? He just ghosted me, you know? So, but I keep up with AEW. I watch their program and I think they have a great show. They bring, they, and which is, the wrestling world needed another organization. Yeah. Because you got to have competition. You've got to. Competition's good. Because back during the Attitude Era, when we were going head to head with WCW, that's when we were, wrestling was awesome. I mean, we were selling out arenas, 2015, 20,000 seat arenas on a nightly basis, seven nights a week. 365 days a year for, you know, a few years. And so, but I just think competition is healthy. WWE doesn't think so, but because the boys have leverage and they don't like that. They They don't like it when the boys have leverage, you know, because they're not going to look out for their talent unless, unless they're, they're, top guy that's bringing in millions of dollars then they're going to look out for him but which i mean i can understand that but still you know look out for everybody because without the boys you wouldn't have a tv show well he's hoping that that does end up happening when the crowds can come back one day i would love to see that i think like i have a little bit of ocd so when things aren't tied off properly I, I can't handle it. That's why I haven't watched WWE in about 10 years. So Yeah. I have a, you know what's funny? I don't even watch it. I don't even flip through the channels to see it. No, I can't stand it's it. It's like, I just, I don't, it's not that I, it's not that I'm disinterested. It's just I have no desire to watch it for whatever, I feel like. whatever reason. I watch, I watch a lot of um, survival shows, like, like alone. alone Alone on the History Channel is my ultimate favorite show. Yeah. I was going to ask if you ended up getting anywhere with trying to get on that show. Haven't got anywhere yet. I'm still trying. Um, I'll keep tagging them on Twitter. I'm, I think I need to get an agent to get in touch with a <laughs> damn producer of the History Channel or something. You guys want to be my agent? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I just I, – because it's like – because I cause – I, go out i haven't done it in a while but i go out in the woods on my own spend time out there by myself for several nights at a time and i enjoy it i enjoy that aspect of it my wife doesn't mind that i go out there and um but she she doesn't want to go out there because i just go out there with my backpack and that's pretty much all i take and right. so yeah, and so I mean, I take my bow, I take my gun, and if I can shoot a turkey or shoot something to eat, why not? So, what? 
don't care if you go because you're not picking up loose women. That's bars. true. <laughs> not picking up loose women in bars. <laughs> I wouldn't go in a bar anyway because I don't drink. But hey, if I'm in the woods, there's no loose women to pick up on. So exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I I love going in the woods. I love the survival shows, and like I watch, I sit there and I watch alone, and a lot of these people. Like, I don't know if you know the concept of the show. I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen one. Of oh, you've seen it? Yeah. And so I think a lot of these guys, they get to missing their families because you're allowed to bring one picture and they bring a picture of their family and their kids. And it starts, it's a mind thing. All right. Because once you're out there and you're hungry, your mind starts playing tricks on you. And so, and they'll pull out their, they'll be out there for, 30, 35 days, and all of a sudden, food's starting to dry up, or you're not catching fish like you used to, or just you're not getting anything. So they start getting hungry, and they'll start thinking about their family, thinking about their kids' birthdays, and some people just had a baby, and they're all out there and everything, and then they'll look at this picture, and it'll do them in, and they'll take that satellite phone, and they'll call in, and they'll quit. And because... The prize is half a million dollars. You win half a million dollars. And like the, the one that, that's being played now, you, if you can make it 100 days, you win a million dollars. And so you have to at least last 100 days. Shit. And I, I think the longest so far that anybody's lasted was 86. It's 86 or 89. Don't hold me to that. It's one of those two. That's a long time to be out there surviving just off the land. And what happens is they do medical checks once a week on everybody. And if you end up losing too much weight, then they pull you because it becomes, you know, dangerous and so forth. So like one guy, I can't remember what season it was. It was, I think it was season two or three, if I'm not mistaken, but he had, he had hoarded a bunch of, he caught a bunch of fish, smoked his fish, and he would not eat because he was afraid that he would run out of food. Oh, so he God. just didn't eat. What? Yeah, <laughs> right? And so he, so they'd come to do the medical check and he's lost too much weight. So they ended up pulling him and the poor guy felt so bad for him. He started crying and everything. He's like, I'll start eating, I'll start eating. Just let me stay. And it's like, once they make the decision to pull you, there's no turning back. You know, so, but yeah, that's, I, I want to get on that show, something terrible. And my wife always told me, she goes, if you come, if you get on that show and you start missing me and you come home because you miss me, she goes, you better find somewhere else to go. Because <laughs> you got to think of it like it's just temporary. Yeah. Like yeah. We're used to being gone. We're used to being traveling and, and so forth. And and so, and plus she's military, so she's used to deploying and being gone for months at a time away from family. And so she has this mindset, yeah, you can miss me, but you better not come home. And, and which, no offense, but I wouldn't come home. I'd stay out there until they carried me out in a body bag. So, <laughs> because my whole thing is, I know they wouldn't let me do it, but as soon as they drop you, in the zone that they picked for you, I would take that satellite phone and throw it in the lake. 
Because <laughs> they're always around. Because yeah, they the, they always have a lake, so you you have an avenue to catch fish and so forth. And uh, I'd take that satellite phone, throw it in the lake. I know that I wouldn't technically do that, but that would be my thought process. So there would be no way I I could get in touch with them to come get me. Do you think so, you'd last the whole hundred days? What's that? Do you think you would last the whole one hundred days? depends on how much food I would damn sure try. I'm not going to sit here. Like a lot of people say, Oh, I'm going to kill this. I can do this. Yeah. This is not a problem for me. Uh, this will be a piece of cake. And they end up tapping after a couple of weeks or whatever. And it's like, you just made yourself look stupid, but I would go with the mindset. Like my intention is to stay a hundred days. Yep barring any injuries. Cause if you get hurt, you just never know. And it depends if I can get food. And there's so many factors that determine you making the hundred days. And I would do my best at staying. I wouldn't, they would have to medically tell me you're done. That's so, yeah. To say that I would last a hundred days, I don't know. I would damn sure try. But <clears throat> as long as I could keep getting food and so forth, and I didn't lose too much weight, then I I, I know I could last a hundred days. It just all depends on how much food you can catch. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it my my new mission to keep <laughs> hounding the show on your behalf. Please, I'll, I'll I'll make different email accounts. I'll, I'll come up with different personas, different names. This would be like the ultimate catfish kind of. See, I, and see, that's the thing is because when I sent them an email, I usually don't tell people who I am. And I thought, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to let them know because everything is based off of ratings. Yeah. And it's based off of ratings and how many sponsors they can get for commercials. Yeah. And so. I figure, yeah, I'm not the most popular wrestler. Like Steve Austin is massively popular. Like they would probably take him in a New York minute if that's what he was into. But, and I just, I basically told him who I was in the, in the email, in the application. And because they want to know your background and everything and what you do. And I told him basically, Hey, 4 million people watch wrestling a week. It's one of the highest, it's the highest watched, one of the highest watched programs on television. And also the social media following, I think it's always number three or four. They talk about football. I think that's it's football. There's a couple other things. And then there's wrestling. Wrestling yeah. is like really powerful on social media. Yep. So I basically told him about that, trying to sell myself to him and, and that, hey, I know whether a lot of wrestling fans, whether they like me or hate me, they're going to tune in either to see me succeed or the ones that don't like me, they're going to want to see me fail, yeah. which is win-win regardless because they're tuning in. And that benefits the History Channel as far as ratings. And I tried to sell myself like on that deal, on the ratings front, too and i sent them a video a survival video that i did when i went out in the woods and uh so they had that in the can but i guess you know and then i got a 
email back from them saying, hey, we'd already picked the cast for season six or season seven, whatever. So, but maybe ne the next round will take a look at your application or whatever. So I did get a response back from them, but damn it, I want to get on that show. And if my, <laughs> if all the wrestling fans out there go on social media and hound history channel to get me on that damn show, uh, not saying I'm the best survivalist, but I study botany, I study all that. And, and so I've got experience being out in the woods surviving and, and so forth. And I have all the survival gear. I've, I've got all that stuff and I've had it for years and years. And, uh, cause I'm, I'm one of these, uh, I wouldn't say prepper kind of guy, but when this whole COVID thing started, people used to make fun of me because I was, I was kind of a prepper. I'd stock up on all this stuff. <laughs> and one of the guys that used to kind of laugh at me, which is fine, because it is, it's kind of laughable sometimes. And when I saw him next, he goes, yeah, now you're the smartest guy in the world. And he goes, I feel like the dumbest because I didn't do anything to prepare for this COVID thing because they shut everything down and grocery stores were running out of stuff. And, and we had plenty of stuff. We got plenty of stuff. So and plenty of toilet paper <laughs> and, all the, and all the toiletries that go along with it too. So, you know, we're, we were in good shape if they, the country is still closed down, but anyway, so it's not one of, it's not a publicity stunt me trying to get on the show. It's the real uh, deal. I'm just trying, I want to get on the show because I am one of these kind of survivalist type of guys, you know, and, and, uh, like a lot of guys that get on the show, they do the videos. Like a, uh, the land that I went on is a friend of mine. He owns 40 acres. And he told me I can go out there anytime I want, stay as long as I want, build what I want. Doesn't matter. Just do what you want to do. And, uh, and see a lot of these guys, they, they own their land and they go out and they make these videos and so forth. And, and I didn't think that they'd want a two or three hour video. And, but that's actually what they want. So my theory of thinking is I need to go make another video that's longer because in the wrestling business, when they send, when uh, independent wrestlers send their videos to the companies that they want to try to get a job with, they're not going to sit there and look at a, a one hour video or one hour wrestling match. They want to yeah. see two or three minutes and that's it because they could, they could see what they want in somebody within a few minutes. And my video is probably 15, 20 minutes long. And I just don't think it's long enough. So I need to go make another one. But anyway, so that's what I'm trying to do now is trying to get on that damn show. Well, best of my... luck with that, Bob. Uh, you know, yeah. we're, we're behind you hundred percent. We're going to help you. Um, You're going to help me. We're going right. to help. We're going to help. We're going to help. We'll cool. send some emails. Uh, I'm sure that was... Please do. We'll start a campaign <laughs> for you, man. Because I, I think it would be absolutely awesome seeing you in your element. Even just talking about you, I mean, hearing you talk about your passion for survival and the outdoors, just seeing you in your element like that would just be fucking awesome, man. So I'm, oh, I'd, tune in. For it. I'd tune in. Um, because when I sit there, I know, I know we've gone over the hour, but I don't care. The thing <laughs> is... If, when I sit here and watch that show and I see these guys out there in complete solitude and just absolutely quiet 
to me, I thrive on that. And it's like, oh my God, these guys that are on the show are the luckiest people in the world to be out there. Now, mind you, it's not, I'm not, it's, it's not because I want to get away from my wife because we're together 24 hours a day and I, I don't want to be with anybody but her, you know? And so, and she's always behind me 100% what I want to do. She's my biggest supporter. Whatever I want to do, she'll support it no matter what. And I actually forgot what I was going with this. But anyway, <laughs> watching that show and those guys out there in that complete solitude and you hear nothing but maybe wind blowing. Am I boring you guys? You guys no, are saying no. <laughs> Okay. But anyway, so, and I'm just like, gosh, what an opportunity for those guys. Because how many people get to experience that? Not very many. And yeah. uh, it's a privilege to be on that show, to be perfectly honest. And nothing pisses me off more when they get somebody, they spend all the money to fly them out because they're out there two weeks prior to being um, dropped in their, the area that they're going to be in. Right. To learn, learn all aspects of that country they're in, what they can hunt, what they can hunt the laws of the land essentially. Yep. And so they, they spend a lot of money on these people just to get them deployed out there. And so it really bothers me when, as soon as they drop them out there, reality sets into these guys and like, Oh my God, I'm by myself. And see, you have to, they give you the, all the camera equipment, the video equipment and everything. You have to do all that yourself and you constantly have to video yourself. So, um, but what bothers me is when they do that for these people and then within one guy quit the very first day he was deployed. Oh, yeah. Exciting. Like that was a way that could have been somebody else's spot. Could have been you. It could have been me. Yes, exactly. There you go. And, and, uh, or somebody quits after a few days. I mean, some people get hurt and I understand that they can't continue. Like one guy, he just blew his, his knee out and he, oh. he had to go. Yeah, he just, he was walking and he stepped wrong, carrying a log to build his shelter. And he kind of stepped off into this hole and it just blew his knee out. And uh, I really think that guy would have made it to the end. But, you know, stuff like that happens and there's nothing you can do. It's out of your control. So, but like guys that just go on there and they just, oh gosh, this isn't for me. After a few days, I'm going to quit. And they quit and it's just crazy. It's crazy. So. Definitely going to get um, the latest season and watch that. I, I, I watched to. a season a few years ago um, when I saw you tweeting about it on Twitter. I watched it and I really enjoyed it. So I want to get back okay. into it. And, uh, There's season, it seven, even set, season seven is playing right now. Right, so I'm cool. not sure what time it comes on in your area, but it's on Thursday nights here. So, in fact, I have it recorded, so I'm probably going to watch it sometime tonight. So. Oh. Um, before I get to a segment where we, we, which we call Five Second Frenzy, um, I wanted to ask you about this one story uh, because I, I've heard you tell it before, but I really love it. Um, there's a rib that you play on Al Snow at a house show because Mick Foley lets oh, you know yeah, that yeah. Al doesn't wear any underwear when he's wrestling. Yep, that was in Montreal. <laughs> yep, middle of wintertime, Montreal. It's really cold. Um, <laughs> And see, we've been running this spot where, because we've been doing it every night in the house shows, 
And every time I'd get Al up in the suplex position and hold him there, the crowd would start laughing. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why is everybody laughing? And so after about a week of that going on, McFoley kind of come to me and he stooged him off and said, hey, this is what he's doing. I'm like, oh, okay. Gotcha. He goes, do you know how you can get him back? He doesn't wear any under tights. I'm like, that's interesting. <laughs> so, and uh, so I pretty much knew what, to, what he was basically saying. So we were in Montreal. It was cold in that building because it was hockey season. They had ice. Everything was, you know, they set everything up over the ice. And so we had, it was 20,000 people there. It was a house show. <laughs> and so the spot came up because we were doing it every single night. Spot came up where I hook him, hold him up, hold him up there forever and got him up. And just as he got ready to do his thing to me, to embarrass me, I grabbed his tights and I pulled him over as I was holding him up <laughs> and exposed him. And I turned him every to every corner <laughs> of the ring and exposed him and basically embarrassed him because it looked like a bunch of killdeer eggs in a nest. <laughs> so, and shrinkage uh, had taken place because it was ice cold in that building. Needless to say, he never did it again to me. So, but I credit Mick Foley for that, that idea because he's the one that, you know, smartened me up. So, yeah. Oh, I love that, man. Um, so, oh, that's great. Okay, so this second uh, segment is called Five Second Frenzy. This is what we ended on. So you have five seconds to answer every question. It's just quick fire kind of uh, Jesus questions. Christ, I don't even know if my brain can uh, work that fast. You guys understand what I did for a living? <laughs> you guys understand what it was like to get hit with a steel chair and not block the damn thing? Because I never blocked them. Never. But anyway, go ahead. Everybody so far has been, been able to do it. So um, okay. if, if you're unable to, then we'll, we might have a problem. But uh... <laughs> uh, Okay. First of all, favorite musical artist? Um, Kid Rock. Cool. Uh, favorite TV show? Alone, maybe? Alone? Yeah. Favorite film? Favorite film? Oh, gosh. The, um, the Italian or the, uh, the Irish one. To Kill an Irishman. Right, I think cool. it's Kill an Irishman. Is that what it is? Kill an Irishman? Something like that. Yeah, another one. Uh, Kill yep. the Irishman? I don't know. No. Uh, it's, it's the one where they say the prayer? The, uh, the Irish prayer. It's the... Oh um oh shit um I don't know I know uh, uh just the, talked about it the other day me and my wife what the hell in the name of the son the father and or something yes. like that the saint the uh, saint the, the, the oh god just look it up <laughs> look it up we'll look it up we, okay. I know what you talking anyways, about yeah I would have answered it just like that counts yeah. that counts as an answer it counts yeah. it counts um uh, favorite match you've been in would it be RVD RVD, yes. Nice. Uh, who was your favorite opponent over the years? Had to have been Al. Cool. Simply because uh, he always he because he always had so many great ideas and he was just fun to work with. He took my abuse, basically. <laughs> he took it. He took my abuse. Sometimes he would fight back. Well, no, he would fight back. Boondock, Boondock Saints. That's it. Oh, Boondock there we go. Saints. Boondock Saints. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite uh, food, your favorite meal? Favorite meal would have to be uh, lasagna. Nice. But, but see, you know what? That's kind of, uh, 
because my wife makes so many great meals, it's hard to say because we hardly ever go out to eat. Yeah. Because the simple fact that she is just an awesome cook. <laughs> so I don't like going out to eat. I'd rather eat her food that she makes because she's an awesome cook. She I doesn't think so. She is. Um, so you say you're not a, uh, a drinker, but um, did you ever drink or would you have a favorite alcoholic beverage if you did drink back in the day or? No, I just no? hated the taste of alcohol. Um, what would be just your favorite, just regular drink then? Well, okay, Corona then. <laughs> yeah, occasional Corona every once in a while. But my favorite drink probably would be RC Cola maybe. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, Favorite female body part? Really? Uh, the ass, ass and legs. Ass. <laughs> awesome. What? <laughs> you know that. That's how. Well, that's what what, he favorite, favorite female body part? Ass. ass. Yeah. See my wife. <laughs> we were expecting I, I was sort of expecting an answer like the brain or something we've had some we've had some wild answers for that question i always yeah. that one um being honest <laughs> <laughs> well the godfather said titties so yeah um uh and uh the last one is your favorite curse word favorite curse word oh gosh you don't want to know that <laughs> Well, we're Probably. from Australia. We've heard it all. <laughs> oh, gosh. Probably, um, I don't know, because I, I use them all equally. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's hard to say, because I use them all, you know, equally. Equal, equal opportunity for all of them. <laughs> okay, every curse word is the answer there. That's yes. a first. That's a first. <laughs> well uh bob i really want to thank you for your time today i know we've gone a little bit over over time but really appreciate your time and before you go on i want to tell you my quick experience of uh meeting you and uh being around you uh when you wrestled here in perth a few years back uh 2014 i think it was um i remember before you got there everyone was scared of you <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I was like, I'm, I'm going to put my bag right next to Bob because I bet he's not that scary. I bet he's fine. He's in Australia. He's probably enjoying the beaches, enjoying himself. So I put enjoying my bag next to yours. On the beach. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've still, I've still got uh, something to do with an ass to, to mention, but, um, okay. We're sitting together. We're having just a little bit of a chin wag back and forth, just about regular things. Me asking you what you were hoping to do while you're in, in our country. And um, there was a girl on the roster and her name was uh, Pandora. <laughs> she was also an exotic dancer. So she's quite a good looking girl. Um, well, as, me you talking, okay. <laughs> as me and you were talking, as me and you were talking, she's uh she's got her new uh little shorts that she wears uh to the ring that she wanted to <laughs> oh, she wow. wanted to she wanted to show off so yep. she walked up to you as we were talking and we both stopped our conversation because she was standing in front of you <laughs> and she turned around and she right. said hey bob do you like my new shorts as she wiggled her butt yeah as, as she wiggled her butt you were looking at at her and then you turned to me and went well, that was good for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I remember her asking that question, but I couldn't remember what I said. 
that was good right. for me as he looked at me in the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's good. awesome. That's good. That's so, an everlasting memory that'll be, be burned into your brain. It was the greatest moment I had in Perth professional wrestling. That's for that's sure. awesome. And oh, that was with God. me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, Bob, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. And I hope even though um, all the stop and start pushes that you would get in your time in the big leagues, in the WWF and WWE, that you still look back really proud of what you accomplished and what you did in the wrestling business because oh, the two guys here in Perth, Western Australia, the most isolated city in the world, we know who you are. We know what you did and we know that you are definitely a hall of famer in our eyes. Oh, thank I, you very no much. Thank no you. Doubt, I'm truly humbled by your kind words. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. And thank you for having me on your show. It's been a blast. I've really enjoyed it. Stay in touch. Please do. We will, man. Okay. We'll do, Bob. All right. Thank you, guys. You have a good day, okay? Awesome. Thank you, Bob. Thanks a lot, Bob. Yep. Thank you. And thank you, guys, for watching the 55 Live podcast in conjunction with the WCWA Network. I'm California with our friend Bob, and we will see you next time. Thank you.